You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Good morning, Redemption. Okay, so you may have noticed there's this giant blue tank over here on the side. Uh, Probably hard to see on the cameras on your TV screens, but if you're here in person, it's impossible to miss. Uh, We're doing another baptism this morning, and it's the reason some of our extended family is here this morning, and it is going to be awesome. Um, We are also having a message uh, in our continuing series from Genesis about gender, and you might be wondering what gender and baptism have to do with each other, and uh, not to spoil the fun, but at the very end, one of the most powerful verses in the New Testament about gender is actually a baptism verse. And if you know where I'm going this morning, you know where I'm going this morning. Um, it's one of the most remarkable things about our revolutionary, subversive, upside down faith that we have because of Jesus. Um, so let me, let me give us a little context because I, I want to move a little quicker this morning than sometimes I do. Um, we're going to talk uh, mostly in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 about gender. Um, the reason that we're doing this is, one, gender matters, and two, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is a battlegrounds for all sorts of cultural issues. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 um, is not read quite like the whole rest of the scriptures by just about any branch of the Christian church. Instead, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is viewed as a foundational, central theological text for all kinds of theological topics, from creation to sin to the purpose of humanity to divine design, including gender. That's where we're going um, together this morning. But before we start, let me me, um, give a couple... uh, uh, words of thoughtfulness. Um, one is this. Uh, everything I want to do as a Christian is I want to know who God is and I want to be 100% like him. I want to know what God wants and I want to be 100% obedient to that. And if God says hard things, I want to do hard things. If God says easy things, I want to do easy things. Whatever God says, whatever he wants, whatever he plans, whatever he articulates, I want to do. In that, oftentimes, the design of God is upside down from the design of the world around us. I already stipulated that the gospel of Jesus is revolutionary and subversive. It could not be revolutionary, nor could it be subversive if it were in 
align with cultural expectations on every topic that we have. So when we come to texts like this, we all, as Christians or people who are trying to understand what does it mean to be Christian, maybe I want to be Christian or I'm just curious about what that would mean, um, we all come with curiosity and humility and say, yeah, this might be a little wild, but I'm going to try to keep an open mind. So point number one is uh, there's hard things in the scriptures. They're backwards. Point number two is this. Um, I, as a pastor, um, hate being controlled. This is part of the way that I'm wired. Um, And one of the things that uh, I wanted to do when we started this church was I wanted to start the kind of church that I could be a happy member of forever, even if I changed my mind on all kinds of ideas and topics as long as they were not central tenets of Christian faith. So the way that we structured this um, internally from the very start was we wanted to fight about the essentials and we wanted to not fight about anything else. So anything that was secondary, we'd say, I, I have my opinions, I can't but help but have my opinions. And sometimes my opinions hopefully are well-informed, they're thoughtful, they're prayerful, they're studied, they're, they're like well-settled opinions. And yet I have my stance on things, it's okay for you to have your stance on things, let's not be jerks to each other. Now, the great thing about that is it, it has provided um, machinery for all of us to safely change our minds. So whatever you grew up thinking about gender and sexuality and some of these things, whatever you grew up um, kind of like uh, internalizing that you thought was supposed to be true, that you thought the scripture said, that you thought Christians must universally believe, you have actual permission from Jesus, I think, but definitely in Redemption Church to change your mind. And this is not a bad thing. Um, I don't have time to get into it this morning, but Christian history is wild, and we like to pretend otherwise. We like to pretend the Christian history is univocal. It speaks with one voice and one perspective at all times, in all places, on all things that have to do with anything that's ever covered in the scriptures, and that is not at all the case. Christian history is wild. And the people we look back on and say, these are the champions of the faith. If there were ever true Christian theologians, these are the guys. Sometimes they look back on other guys and say, no, 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 if there were ever true champions of the faith that were true theologians, it's these guys, right? So we have class one, they look back and look at class two, and yet when we skip over and look at class two, we're like, those dudes are heretics, okay? And I... I'm, uh, I'm not exaggerating. I'm not giving you any detail right now because this is not really the point of uh, the sermon, but he- here's what I want to do in-, in preparation is I want to give you permission and challenge to change your mind. But honestly, I think for the vast majority of us in here this morning, we're not going to be changing our minds. I just don't want you to feel guilty about acknowledging that your mind changed a whole long time ago, and what I'm going to show you from the scriptures this morning confirms that in ways that very well may be surprising. Okay, with all of that, here's what we're going to do, is we are going to um, look at Genesis 1. We're just going to jump in, uh, and then I'll do a little bit more um, step back, and we'll ask why these passages on gender. Here's what Genesis 1 uh, verse 27 says. We read this a couple weeks ago, but let's read it again. God created Adam. I know our translation here says God created man. 
Um, the, the Hebrew word for man is Adam. The Hebrew word Adam doesn't mean man as in masculine or male. Um, it means human. God created the human. God created the Adam in his own image. So in God's own image, God created the human. In the image of God, he created him. We might say it, there's like a grammatical gender thing going on that, again, has nothing to do with maleness and nothing to do with masculinity, has to do, like, very clearly in the Hebrew text, God created the human in his own image. In his own image, he created this uh, human. Male and female, he created them. So there's a very strange thing going on here in the Hebrew um, that I want to get back to. Okay, but let's, let's pause here for a second. Um, I'm going to say uh, a bunch of things about what this doesn't say, and I'm going to say a few things about what this does say. Uh, this is an unconventional sermon. It's an unconventional message. My intent is not to just be like a college lecture at you guys all the time. And yet, uh, l- let's, let's talk about culture. Let's talk about the kinds of sermons, the kinds of messages, the kinds of TikTok, uh, I don't even know what you call them on TikTok, I'm so out of, uh, on Instagram they're reels and I literally have no idea what they're called on TikTok, the TikToks, are they just TikToks? TikToks, all right, so, <laughs> okay, so I'm showing my age a little bit, um, as if my bald head didn't. Um, If you spend a whole lot of time in churches, there is a large swath of the Christian church that um, pretty clearly and over the top says, hey, this is what everyone has always believed. It's clear in scripture, and if you listen to us and you don't deny Jesus, then you're going to like end up here. And if you don't end up here, it's because you didn't read your Bible, you don't believe the Bible, you must be a God-forsaken liberal, and God's wrath is going to come on you. And like, I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating slightly, um, and I, like, b- but, I'm, but I'm not, okay? I, I wanna be fair in everything. So it's not that every person that disagrees with me says this. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is there are loud and important and influential voices that even in the year of our Lord 2022, like within the past uh, two weeks, I can send you sermons from major, influential, famous American pastors that say basically this. They say, hey, I, I understand that in our culture, there's all sorts of debates about women's ordination, about the role of women, about what it means to be feminine, about what it means to be married, about whether you should have kids or not, much less all the issues of uh, sexuality and gender and LGBTQ plus and IA, and we'll get into a tiny bit of that this morning. But, but what these pastors are going to say and what they do say, and I'm not going to... This, this sermon isn't really about this, but if you want like references, I will provide you a long list of direct quote references. One of the things I'm always nervous about is mischaracterizing or demonizing people, but like I, I promise you, I'm not making them say more than they said. Okay, here's, here's what they said, is, is they say, uh, given all the cultural issues, people come to their text and they ask questions about the important places in the New Testament, particularly, that speak about women and that speak about LGBT things. 
And what they'll tell you is that there's uh, liberals, like Zach McCoy, who would contextualize these verses and tell you that they don't mean what you think they mean, okay? In the very next breath, what they will say is, yeah, they might be right, but they're missing the point. Because the point is that from God's design, male and female have always operated this way. Look at passages like Genesis 1, verse 27. Okay, here's my point. We have all these arguments. I don't have time to go through 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians and Romans and all these passages. Um, like, I do that all the time with you guys in like microwaves. Uh, this is not that sermon. This sermon is really meant to be on Genesis. But, but I want to say that I'm not overreading into Genesis about gender. Neither am I locating this argument in Genesis uh, because of my own convenience. The, the arguments about gender and sexuality from both the liberal side and the conservative side, most of the time these days, don't have to do with the New Testament text because most of us have agreed the context changes the way you read them very significantly. And if you listen to uh, the complementarian side, the folks who are going to very strictly and clearly limit roles of women in ways that you have already heard Lauren stand up here and say that we don't do here at Redemption, they are going to locate the heart of this battle here in texts exactly like this. Does that, that make sense? So I'm not giving you any detail on the rest of the New Testament this morning. It's not because you don't need more detail. I will provide resources. We can have conversations, but I'm going to end up here for like two hours and we need to do a baptism. I'm here in Genesis 1:27, talking about gender because this is where everybody talks about gender. Okay, so one of my large fears in life uh, is um, wounding my child. Like, I'm not, I'm not a violent man. I, like, I don't fear wounding him in that way at all. Um, but, but I fear wounding him emotionally and psychologically. Now, there's... Uh, a sense in which this is going to happen because, man, I'm just going to make mis mistakes and I'm going to be impatient with him in ways that he doesn't deserve it. I'm going to be harsh with him and too demanding with him. Like, like, and, and I want to be really sensitive about that. But the thing that actually really scares me is the thing that you hear me say when I say, we have a youth group and we have the kind of youth group that I want to send my kid to because I'm terrified of youth groups destroying my kid's soul. Now, that's a super dark and negative view of youth groups, and I'm sorry, maybe all of you don't have that. Um, maybe you shouldn't, but if you spend your time around you guys like I do, you understand how much uh, purity culture and teachings on sexuality and gender deeply wound so many of us deeply wound so many people who are in this room and deeply wound so many of our friends in ways that the youth pastors never intended. So part of the reason that I preach sermons like this is not just to say, oh, look at us, we're woke or whatever. Um, uh, I, like, I say that a little tongue-in-cheek. Um, I preach sermons like this uh, with the acknowledgement that we will not all be members of Redemption Church forever. 
we will move off. We will end up in different churches. We will, for a whole bunch of, whole smattering of uh, good reasons, end up at all kinds of different churches, and you are going to hear teaching from Genesis 1 along the lines of, if you do not agree that men are to dominate women and that the roles, even though there's value and there's equality and value, there is distinction in role, and the role for the man is to command, and the role for the woman is to be commanded, and if you do not uh, live your life that way, then you are not the full image of God, you are robbing God of glory, and you are courting his wrath. Okay? You are going to hear sermons like this because they are preached week after week after week after week after week from texts exactly like this. Because they read, Genesis 1.27 says, God created a male and female. Tell me again about transsexuality. Tell me again about gender dysphoria. Tell me again about non-binary. And this is used as a trump card. God designed masculine roles and feminine roles. Isn't that what this says? If you don't believe in God's word, then you have merely capitulated to culture. God's word is meant to be subversive and radical and revolutionary. And this says there are only two genders, and these two genders are divinely determined. Okay, so let me pause here and say, this is the end of me griping about them, whoever them may be. Let me do a little bit of deconstructing um, for you, right? Uh, Because this isn't what that text said, although I could convince you that that's what the text said. Here's the problem. Um, The thing that all of y'all should be scared of is other people wielding their supposed expertise in languages and cultures and histories over you and commanding you that if you're not doing things their way, then you're not doing things God's way. Listen, I run the same risk over you guys as a pastor. I'm very well aware of that risk. It doesn't make me immune to that risk. There is always a risk. Now, how do we deal with that risk? We do it in two ways. One, we learn to love and trust people. Uh, Maybe three ways. Two, um, we listen to the Holy Spirit of Jesus. And three, we do actually try to inform ourselves about the broader Christian uh, like swath of perspectives both now and throughout history. Um, Y'all ever heard of this dude named Augustine? No, nobody's ever heard of Augustine. Um, so there's a saying that the Protestant Reformation was a debate in the mind of Augustine against the mind of Augustine. So everybody in the Western church, whether Roman Catholic or Protestant, loves Augustine and says, Augustine is our dude. One of the wildest things I've ever read from Augustine, um, I read uh, this week where in his City of God in book 16 in section 8, in case you ever want to look it up later, he talks about um, those who we would now call intersex. Um, in the old days, we would have used um, derogatory, like, uh, like 
language that is not acceptable anymore about androgyny or about hermaphrodites, and I use those um, and tell you that those are, those are not good words, don't call people that, it is offensive, and yet some of us are like, I don't even know what intersex is. Intersex is, like uh, my wife was telling me about being on a rotation in PA school in the labor and delivery room and a baby being born with reproductive organs that weren't entirely distinguishable of whether this kid was male or female, and uh, sexual and reproductive specialists were brought in to ask, is this male, is it female, what do we do? Okay, so, so there is um, a, a whole wide variety of realities, some chromosomal, some physical, even beyond uh, what we would call like gender dysphoria and things that have to do um, with mind and sensation and inner versions of self, which I'm not saying don't exist, but even if we set that to the side for a moment, we say there are these physical realities that there are people who do not entirely fit male or female. Now, this may sound like some 21st century woke agenda nonsense, and yet, City of God, Book 16, Section 8, Augustine, the great theologian, says, look at these intersex people. Look, look, look at them. Does our good God who makes everyone, did he mess them up? Nah. You know what? There is beauty in all of our makers' diversity. In the fifth century, Christians were acknowledging the reality and the beauty of the diversity of, the diversity of things that don't fall into the male and female dichotomy that we might stand up here and say, thus saith the Lord, there is nothing except male and female. The, the problem with reading the text that way is that's not what the text meant. The text is stepping into a debate that he didn't, didn't, didn't know you thought it was going to have. The, the purpose of the text here in Genesis 127, can we bring it back up, um, is, uh, right, I, I read to you guys way too much from the Enuma Elish the other day. Um, everybody remembers that banger of a sermon. Um, okay, so there is... Ancient Near Eastern context. The Bible is not written in a vacuum. The same way that you first see a meme on Instagram, the person that is using that meme didn't make the meme up. They're just like going with it and they've twisted it in just little ways and are using the form in important ways that you need to understand the context to understand what's going on in the meme and you need to understand what's, what's being said in common so that you'll see what's being said different and then that's where the joke is, that's where the meaning is. This is how Genesis 1 works. When we look at ancient Near Eastern uh, context, and stories about the creation of humanity. Humans in general were not made in the image of God. Kings were made in the image of God. And here, in a very countercultural, revolutionary, subversive way, even Genesis 1 is saying, no, 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 it's not just kings, it's Everyone, yeah, everyone, male, female, you name it. God created the human in his own image, in the diversity of genders, in his image, he created them. And all of a sudden we're back to, oh, this isn't some text about no trans, 
This is a text about the beauty of and dignity to be found in all forms of God's variation. Let's keep reading. Um, hang on. Let's not keep reading. I, I sort of said this, but I want to make sure that I really said this. In the Hebrew, Adam is both male and female. Okay? I'm not saying that the person who we call the name Adam, I'm not saying that that Adam was intersex. That, that's not what I'm saying. Although, historically, there are theologians who said that, as interesting as that is. Um, what I'm saying is that the Hebrew word Adam is not a name. It is a name for human. It's humanity, the human. Okay, there's, there's a little pun going on um, that the Adam is created out of the Adamah. The Hebrew word Adamah means the ground, and the Adam is the one who's formed out of the ground, and God breathes his life into him, and as God breathes, then there's life, and suddenly it's a human being. Okay, um, Adam is both male and female. Here, let, let me say it one more way. There is nobody named Eve who lives in the Garden of Eden. Let me show you what I mean. Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for the Adam to be alone. I'll make him a su uh, helper suitable for him. So God's created all the diversity. He's named things. Um, he's named the, the stars in the sky. He's named um, like the, the planets and lights. He's named darkness. And then he's created um, the Adam, male and female. He created them. And he gave over them, uh, to them, this power uh, to be co-creators, co-rulers, like we talked about a, a few weeks ago. This is the grand dignity of God making us uh, equity stakeholders in the cosmos. So in chapter two, it comes back and says, here's what actually happened with this Adam that we know was male and female, is originally this Adam was male, and God looked and said, it's not good for this Adam to be alone. Let me, in his co-creativeness, search and find somebody who is a suitable fit helper for him. Now, sometimes we take this and we actually make it mean the opposite of what it's meant to mean. So, so we come back to this and we say, oh, the, the, the woman, she's only a helper. Like the real commander, that's the Adam. The real boss, that's the Adam. But like the assistant, like Batman and Robin, um, which like, uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> Right, but, but, but we kind of do this. There, there's two problems with this. One is lexically, this word helper is, re, is used throughout the rest of the Old Testament over and over and over. God is my helper. God is my helper. The spirit of God is my helper. The spirit is my helper. God is my helper. This is not a title of denigration. This is not a title of subjugation. This is a title of God helps me and he does things for me that I can't do. What Adam is looking for here is not somebody who's different from him that he can subjugate. In the narrative of the text, what he's going to do is he's going to search the entire created order at that moment and find somebody who matches him. And he names cattle and horses and fish and giraffes and goats. And he names and names and names and names and names. And in naming, he co-creates with God because the act of naming is part of creation in ancient Near Eastern thought. 
And it's what God has invited the Adam into is co-create together with me, give names. And as he names, he says, nope, that one's different. Nope, that one's different. Nope, that one's different. That, nope, that one's different. And then here in Genesis 2.18, God says, well, we, we haven't found anything that's suitable. Let's create him something that actually matches. And then a couple verses later, God knocks Adam out, takes his rib, makes a woman, and Adam wakes up and he exclaims, now this is it. This is the one who is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Call me Ish and call her Isha. Now, I, I, I tell you those words, the Hebrew Ish and Hebrew Isha, because this is man and woman. The, the, the point is that they're very closely related, that they are matches. Adam has looked at all the other beasts and said, not a match, not a match, not a match, not a match, not a match. And then suddenly, Ish and Isha. So the only three names that we have in the Garden of Eden until after the fall, we'll get there here in just a minute, are Adam, which is human, and Ish and Isha. Similarity. Sameness. Dignity co-creative work. God says, I need somebody to rule and reign over the cosmos together with me. You know what? It's not good if it's just one. Let's make two. So God made the Adam male and female in his own image. Now, one of the things that's sometimes said is, therefore, we cannot fully image God if we're only male and don't have a female partner. Or we can only image God fully if we're female, uh, if we also have a male partner. And there's, there's this like wackiness here. And I'm just like, use a counter example. Like just sanity check this with the first person from the Bible who comes to your mind. Right? Jesus, who is stipulated to be the image of the invisible God, did not need a female to be paired with him to make him fully and totally and redemptively the image of God. Okay? So, so we, we stretch things way, way too far, and we misread the text as it actually is. Okay, so after Genesis 1, after Genesis 2, they're created, um, they're living there. God puts the human, uh, the human and the, the, the woman, the human's wife, in this garden to tend, to work it. He says, you can eat of everything, but don't eat this one tree. Then a serpent shows up and says, did God really say you couldn't eat? And she says, well, he said we couldn't eat or touch of the one, but we can do everything. And then there's the fall. Okay, we're going to get back next week to the fall, to what does sin mean? What does it look like? Is sin just an external category? Or what does it mean when Zach says sin is intrinsic and actually breaks the cosmos? That's next week. But, but here, what happens after the fall, after um, Eve eats the fruit and gives it to her ish to eat also after her, and all of a sudden there's a fracturing, and they're about to get kicked out of Eden, there is this series of verses known as the curse. And God curses the serpent and the ground, and he looks and he says to the woman in the midst of the curse, he says, uh, Genesis 3.16, to the woman he said, to the Isha he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. 
We could, we could get like really interesting here and talk about um, there's probably metonymy going on. That is, that is, um, the word here is not actually pain in childbirth. Like literally what it says is there, there will be pain in conception. And then you're like, but wait, I thought that was the fun part, not the painful part. And, but, but then, like not to be crass, but like, literally this is, this, is, this is what our texts say. Unfortunately, sometimes we sanitize it so much to be like PC that you don't actually understand what's going on. What, what, what is happening here is a curse and pain in more than just the birthing process, but in the whole of the human family raising process, in child rearing, and child creation, there is going to be brokenness and pain. Yet, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Okay, here is the first talk of domination of one human over another. The first time the Holy Scriptures, Genesis, the Bible, talks about man dominating woman, it is explained as part of the fall and part of the curse. I thought it was God's good design. I thought it was his order. I've actually had a, a pastor, I thought friend. It, 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 was, it was. It was a friend. Sit across the table from me and tell me that based on my views on gender and sexuality that I was robbing glory from God because I didn't agree with divine design. And then we come here and we're like, wait, I thought on Genesis' own terms, the desire for manipulation and domination and subjugation was kind of a bad thing. Not something to be codified forever and ever and ever. You see, if, if we look at the world, if we, if we look at culture, if we look at the waters we actually swim in, everything is built on domination. Everything is built on us trying to take away the humanity of the people around us. The awful shooting that happened in Buffalo last night where a guy goes in and is explicitly killing people because of his replacement theory racism. Killing black folks because, no, I'm gonna dominate you. I need to replace you. I need to eliminate you. I am human and you are subhuman. This is of one piece, one kind, one similar quality that we look around and we're like, wait, I thought the church always, everywhere, forever wanted men to dominate their women. That's not goodness. That's not holiness. That's sin. That's the brokenness of the world. And Genesis has been telling us this. I want to rant here for like 30 minutes. Um, what's, what's the ethic of Jesus? When Jesus says, hey, if you want to be like me, here's what you do. Does he say, if you want to be like me, I'm the God of all gods. You better figure out how to control some other people. No, of course not. Jesus says, the ethic of Christianity, the defining ethic, 
is we lay down our lives for each other. The defining ethic is not that we try to be lords, but that we become the slave of everyone. This is unthinkable. Jesus completely flips upside down our narrative of domination and control and subjugation and power and says, if you want things back like they were, rail against every and any narrative of domination and control and dehumanization in gender, in sexuality, in race, and in every other way. Embrace the beauty of the diversity around you. In fact, when I come and judge you on that last day, you know what I'm going to ask you? Hey, did you take care of the least of these? Actually, he doesn't phrase it that way. He says, you didn't take care of the least of these, therefore you didn't take care of me. You didn't clothe me when I was naked. You didn't feed me when I was hungry. You didn't come to visit me when I was in prison. When I was weak, when I was outcast, when I was down and out, when I was marginalized, when I was overlooked, when somebody had power over me, you did not flip the script. You did not take care of me. Like in, in so many ways, we see that the ethics of Jesus are always about flipping this narrative of domination and subjugation, and then we go back and we're like, oh my gosh, this is in Genesis. Now, lest you think I'm reading slightly too much into Genesis 3, um, let, let me read you a couple verses later. So let, let's, let's recap the narrative. So God has created the human, God has said, human, I want you to co-rule with me over this thing. In fact, I so want you to co-rule and co-create that I'm going to let you name all the other beasts that now you are going to rule. And then God says, actually, hang on, there's, there's one problem. The problem is that this solo person, I shouldn't be solo, he needs relationality. He needs intermutuality. Not for the purpose of domination. Actually, what happens when God says, it's not good for the man to be alone, his fix is, so let's have two of them. And then the upshot after saying, there needs to be two of them, and then they fall, like what the fall actually results in is all of a sudden, Adam doesn't have an equal anymore. Adam doesn't have a helper anymore. Adam's trying to rule his co-creator and his co-helper. He's trying to dominate her the same way that he dominates and names all the other animals. So God curses uh, the ground. He pronounces uh, this dreadful thing on the woman in Genesis 3.16. And then here in 3.20, right after God has said to the Adam, hey, I know you came out of the Adamah, but now that Adamah is going to dominate you forever, you're going to have to fight the ground for your food, and eventually it is going to swallow it, because from you, it you were taken, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, very next verse. Right, so curse, and very next verse, very first human action after the curse that says, hey, there's, there's going to be this fight for domination, it's coming, beware, things are different, very next verse. Now, the man called his wife's name Eve. He named his wife like he named the cows. And we're bereft. 
And if we take a long view of culture and history and humanity, the common theme of just about every society, just about everywhere, just about always. The common narrative is one of men dominating and threatening and killing women. I heard a statistic recently that something like 96% of murder-suicides that are in a domestic situation are done by men against women. Like, if we want to talk about being countercultural, about being subversive, about being revolutionary, this is the thing to be countercultural, subversive, and revolutionary about. Which brings me to our baptism text. Which sounds hilarious, right? Baptism after all that? No. Here's what baptism looked like and meant in the eyes of Paul the Apostle, who is going to directly quote from Genesis 1.27. Um, now, we know this is a baptism text. I don't have 327 up on the screen for you. I only have 328. Oh, I do have 327. Ah, boom. All right, uh, here's the thing. As many of you as were baptized into Christ, you've clothed yourself with Christ. So what happens at baptism is we strip ourselves of our identity, of our disambiguation, of our distinguishing from each other. You see, clothes are a marker of wealth. They're a marker of position. They're a marker of style. They're a marker of status. How do you know who's a man and who's a woman? Look at their clothes. How do you know who's rich and who's poor? Look at their clothes. How do you know who's American and not? How do you know who's um, pagan versus Jewish? Look at their clothes. Look at their clothes. Look at their clothes. Look at, tr- look at their clothes. Paul here says, no, no, no. Like, your clothes are Christ himself. Verse 28. There's no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. You notice the weirdness of this phrasing? He says, Jew or Greek, slave or free, but he doesn't say male or female. He says male and female because he's directly quoting from Genesis 127 saying, you know the thing that's been so jacked since the creation of the world when everything went to pot in the first place? You want to talk about gospel good news. You want to talk about Jesus fixing everything. You want to talk about subversion and revolution and healing of all things. Here it is. No more Jew or Greek. No more slave or free. No more male and female. Put on Jesus as your clothes. We are baptized into a new hopeful reality where God is doing away with all of our dehumanization, with all of our subjugation, with all of our narratives of dominance, of all of our sayings of, well, it's not just diversity. That's actually bad. They're not honoring the glory of God. They're robbing him of glory. They're critiquing his name. They're not being obedient and they don't read the scriptures. Paul says, you're caring about your kids dressing like a man or a woman? Dress them up in Jesus in wild ways. 
This is what makes us Christian. Jesus makes us Christian. But to be united to Jesus is not something reserved only for men. It's for all of us and all of our humanity and all of our genderedness and all of our physicality and all all of our sexuality and all of our everything and all of our shame. I want to read you this quote before we get to baptism. Um, The band's going to come up here and uh, we're going to have the baptizand up here. Um, Oh, dang, did I really not? Eh, Okay, never mind. Somehow I lost my quote. Um, Here's the invitation for absolutely all of us is that we can clothe ourselves regardless of our gendered bodies in the very person of God, the very person of Christ who is the fullness of the image of God and longs to be bolted together with you forever and ever and ever. Without withholding any of his spiritual blessings, without withholding any of his spiritual direction or goodness or fullness, you as you are are beloved and you as you are, are enough for Jesus. Because none of us is ever enough for Jesus. Let's celebrate this cry of baptism as we reevaluate and subvert all of the cultural expectations around us. Here come Mike and Mason. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor, or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.